Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to continue our conversation about racial justice. If you had a chance to listen to our previous episode, we discussed racial justice with Reverend Daniel Parham and talked about ways that we can think theologically about racial justice. We want to continue that conversation further today. And joining me, we have Grace Sengalang Ng, who is a PhD student at Biola University. How's it going, Grace? It's good. And joining us also, we have Dr. Walter Augustine, who is the Director of Intercultural Education and Research in the Division of Diversity and Inclusion at Biola University. And he's also an adjunct professor at Talbot in the area of theology and ethics. Thank you so much for joining us, Walter. Thank you for having me, John. So, Walter, let's begin uh, just your thoughts and reactions to the horrible events from Memorial Day and just the aftermath and, and how you've been processing things. Well, as I reflect on what happened uh, over Memorial Day weekend with George Floyd and that following on the heels of the Ahmaud Arbery situation, the Breonna Taylor situation, um, and a number of other situations, uh, the, the overwhelming emotions that I've been experiencing are grief. And just an overwhelming sense of fatigue. With this situation, this is nothing new. And uh, this is you know, something that we've experienced many times before. But as I think mm-hmm. about this, I also think about even my own father, who grew up in a segregated South. Think about my grandfather and, and many of my ancestors uh, mm-hmm. throughout the years who have experienced similar things. And yet here we are in 2020 experiencing some of the same types of things that they went through. So it almost feels like hundreds of years of weight on our shoulders and on my shoulders during this time. And it contributes to the sense of grief and uh, fatigue that uh, we have not progressed past this point. Speaking of that, that issue of not having progressed, naming it directly, thinking about racism in our, in our culture, for many, racism is conceived of in individualistic categories. You know, I'm not a racist or I am a racist or that person is a racist. And when we do that, we tend to ignore the ways in which racism is actually systemic and it is perpetuated by aspects of culture that privileges uh, some over others. So I believe that um, for me, I think some of our struggle with that sort of lies in, as you mentioned, this concept of individualism um, versus sort of the the community or the collective. And I'm I'm mindful, I'm reminded that um, from an Old Testament standpoint, God was aware of the realities of systemic racism and systemic injustice, I should say. Um, Mm. And so even in terms of many of the laws built into Mosaic laws, the Jubilee laws, the Sabbath laws, so on and so forth, um, we see within the Old Testament this attempt to both acknowledge the reality of systemic injustice as well as to address the issues of systemic injustice. But somehow uh, it feels like we have forgotten that there is not only the individual but the collective yeah. Uh, reality of sin impacting systems, structures, policies, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's an important uh, thing for us to hopefully be able to um, recall and to be able to recapture in some respects is the reality that God is aware of uh, systemic uh, injustices and sin. And I wonder if maybe we could talk about white privilege. I think for some, that's a very sensitive and controversial 
topic and there's a there's a concern that you know white people are being beat up or something like that or that's it's a sin to be white or these sorts of things and i think there's this assumption that you know oh what white privilege means is if you're white you have it better off than others and so what some people want to do who think that white privilege isn't real or it's just like a kind of political posture of some sort uh, is they want to point to anecdotal evidence like, oh, well, you know, this white person doesn't have it as well off as, you know, this other non-white person. And of course, that's not at all what white privilege is is about. Can we clarify what white privilege is? I mean, I think there's a lot of confusion around around this topic. Yes, I think, um, and I'm glad that you said what you said, John, you're you're right. It is not just about one person being more well-off than others. Uh, Many times I hear white privilege referred to specifically in economic terms and in no other terms. However, I believe that the situation, not only with George Floyd, but with Philando Castile in the Minneapolis area, Minneapolis-St. Paul area, a number of years ago as well, is a perfect illustration of white privilege. And so what we're talking about there is this idea that as specifically um, within the African-American community that we have to many times have the talk with our our children, so on and so forth. And this talk is not a talk of birds and bees, but instead it is a talk specifically geared towards how do you interact with the police when they stop you? Mm -hmm. Because it may make a difference between life and death. That is a conversation that many uh, within the white community do not have to have right, with right. their children because they already have an assumption that the police are there to support them and to help them. And they do not have anything to fear from the police. But within much of the African-American community, it, they, the opposite is true. Mm-hmm. And so you just see sort of these inherent advantages in a sense, not necessarily economic, but these advantages right. that exist um, within the white community that are basically part of the system and structure in which they are able to benefit from. It does not necessarily mean that they are guilty uh, of doing anything. It's just something that they were born into. The, the way I like to, to illustrate it just real quickly uh, is that um, I often take students through an image of Jesus and a woman at the well in John 4. And as we talk about that, I ask the questions of basically what type of privileges did Jesus have and Mm. what type of privileges did the woman at the well have? And then I I basically ask the question, was Jesus privileged? Did Jesus have advantages Mm. that he did not necessarily earn, but are something that still, you know, he benefited from? Mm. And so I think that helps people to see that this concept of privilege, and even as we talk about white privilege, is a concept that exists and that basically in, in many different ways and in many different perspectives, people have various privileges, including white privileges within a society. That's a really great example. I love that example of the woman at the well. Thank you for bringing that up and drawing that, drawing our attention to that passage and thinking about it in in a way that that maybe doesn't you know put somebody off who who may be thinking about this and and finding themselves you know in the crosshairs or something like that. I think the fact that white people can 
turn off the news and ignore what's going on. They can, you know, turn on episodes of The Office and try and just ignore and provide some sort of reprieve from the situation is actually an example of white privilege itself. The the ability to be able to sort of pull out from the experiences. Of course, uh, our Black friends don't have that privilege, right? Don't have the advantage of being able to ignore the situation or pull themselves out of what's going on. Yes, that's a great example, I do believe. Yeah, I also wanted to add um, that, you know, as an Asian American, like we have experienced our own history of discrimination and also like current discrimination in light of COVID. But at the same time, I think we also have certain privileges that the African American community does not have because I think like for me, I don't feel like I have to have that conversation with, you know, my future children about being fearful of the police. I think because of the model minority myth, this actually has in some ways given Asian Americans a certain kind of privilege in a sense, like discrimination and systemic injustice doesn't affect us, I think, to the depth of the African American community. Can we also talk about why it is so hard for some people to just say that Black lives matter? Where's the hang up and how can we maybe help listeners think through this? I think that's a great question, John. When I look at people struggling with saying Black lives matter, um, I often look at it in somewhat historical context. I believe that what has happened and to some extent in society today is that uh, many people feel that um, those who are crying for Black Lives Matter are basically, from their perspective, ignoring the gains that have been made since segregation. Uh, Mm -hmm. Many people that I've spoken to have argued that when civil rights legislation went into effect, that essentially um, racism went away for Uh, folks to say Black Lives Matter is in some ways for some people um, almost a reverse discrimination type of thing, emphasizing Black lives over anyone else's life. However, as they look at it from that perspective, I think, John, that that speaks to something you just mentioned before, just the privilege of being able to turn off or Mm -hmm. to opt out of um, certain situations and circumstances and not have to experience um, some of the things that uh, many African Americans have to experience. But I also think that it ignores, for me, sort of the other side of this thing, which is if people many times say, when they hear Black Lives Matter, they will say all lives matter. Mm-hmm. Um, then the, the ethicist in me will say, well, why don't we demonstrate that? Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't we show that? Because if all lives matter, then that means that we are going to treat all lives with respect, with dignity. We are going to treat everyone else as a fellow human being. Yet we still see these inequities taking place uh, within our society in many of these different areas. And so I, I think that it's a, it's, two, it's a clash of two paradigms, essentially. It's a paradigm of those who are experiencing the inequities saying, hey, you're saying all lives matter, but we're not experiencing it as if you feel like my life matters. Mm -hmm. But then the other side is those who say, well, look, because legal segregation no longer exists, racism no longer exists. And so you should not be complaining about your situation and circumstances. 
It, re- it reminds me of this uh, meme I think I saw once of, you know, a family sitting at the table and, you know, one one kid is not given any food and the kid says, I'm hungry. And somebody responds with, we're all hungry, <laughs> you know, uh, mm-hmm. it, to ignore the particularity with a generalization is really unhelpful. Yes, and, and I think that's a, a wonderful point in terms of um, particularities versus generalities. Uh, and, and it just reminds me a little bit of, um, if I can think about this theologically a little bit, just of how even when it comes to issues of sin, many times I've heard people when we bring up issues of race or when issues of race are discussed, people will say, well, it's not a race problem, it's a sin problem from mm-hmm. a particularity, uh, excuse me, yeah, from a particularity to a generality. However, at the same time, while I would agree that it is a sin problem, I'm also reminded of what uh, John says in 1 John 1, 9, where he says that if we confess our sins, we are faithful and just, he's faithful just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so even in that passage and studying that passage and in some of the things I've been taught, when we confess our sins in that passage, John is not talking about general sins. John is talking about particular sins. Yeah. And so even as we think about this issue of generality versus particularity, I believe that scripture focuses us and points us towards the need to become more particular, more specific as we address these issues and not leave it at the general level. Mm. Even in the story of Hagar, God sees her outcry. You know, she's an individual person from, you know, a specific ethnicity, and she was being, you know, persecuted against. And God saw her, her mm-hmm. cries and helped her and comforted her in that. And seeing that we also need to see like specific ethnicities and seeing the kinds of injustices that are happening against them. Um, and being sensitive and standing in solidarity with them, um, just as God saw Hagar. On the topic of confession, uh, we see, like in the Bible, confessing the sins of our forefathers. So understanding our need to see the importance of history and how we are still connected to that history, I think is really important. So what should the role of the church be in all of this uh, as, as we think about these issues of racism and all, all of the controversies going around throughout the, throughout the country and, and the way that people are responding to protests, some with disdain, you know, some obviously with applause. And there, there's just this tension in our, in our country. And I'm wondering if we can address as, as Christians what the role of the church ought to be in all of this. It's a great question. I believe as we talk about the role of the church in all this situation, I'm reminded of the fact that uh, in this country throughout history with regards to issues of race and racism, that many times it has been the church that has been at the forefront of battling against racism, whether it was the abolitionists back during the times of slavery whether it was many of the ministers, including Martin Luther King, who led the way during the civil rights movement. For many years, we have seen the church being at the forefront of addressing many of these issues within our society. And I believe that that's because the church has a view um, with regards to humanity 
um, and the Imago Dei within humanity that lends itself to being able to speak to the humanity of all people, of all individuals, as well as the particularities of how God has created them. So it's striking to me that even today, as we look at the movements that are going on today, that there is not a major church presence uh, that is leading, that is bringing their voice into this space. So as we talk about how the church can step in, I think one place, number one, is to be able to speak to recognize and to acknowledge the reality of the humanity of all of those who are involved um, in this situation, that George Floyd, that uh, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, so on and so forth, were all created within the image of God, that they were mm-hmm. wonderfully made, that even as we talk about during COVID-19 and some of the racism that is being shown towards mm-hmm. those of the Asian American community, that they've been created in the image of God and been wonderfully made. We need to be able to step in as a church and bring in our voice theologically to acknowledge that. The number two is solidarity, coming alongside those who are marching, who are protesting, but doing it in a way that will be peaceful, that will demonstrate the values of the kingdom of God to those that we are marching with. And I believe that Dr. King back in the 60s was a great example of doing that. So I would say that those are two major ways that uh, the church can come in and come alongside those who are protesting in this situation on today. Third thing I will say real quickly is that the church has been called to be a countercultural witness to the world. And so the thing, a third thing I think the church could do well would be to model what race relations should look like Mm. for the rest of society. If the church is able to figure this out within the church and to figure out how to live together as the body of Christ, as those who were created uniquely by God for our own unique purposes, but yet still together as a body, as, as a body, unity amidst diversity, if you will, then I think that that will also help to serve and show a way to the world of how this can look differently. So those are a few thoughts that I have. Yeah, I think to go along with Walter said, uh, just to be able to listen to the stories and the experiences of different people of color, to be able to um, educate ourselves about the histories of African Americans, of Asian Americans, of Latino Americans, of Native Americans, to read up on theology by various authors of color. I think these are ways where we can just be more mindful and aware of mm-hmm. um, some of the struggles that people of color have faced in this nation and across the world. Yeah, and that. Uh, we can use that awareness to stand in solidarity, to have a heart of unity with one another. In the midst of the ongoing protests and the ways in which our nation and frankly our world is still reeling from the events from uh, Memorial Day, as we think about all that's going on and the potential for change, the possibility of reform, is a reason to be hopeful. You know, there's a kind of sad element of you know, oh, I've heard this one before. Is there reason to be hopeful about change, reform in the midst of what's going on right now? 
I think that as we look at the situations, uh, there, there are some areas where we can find hope in the midst of this time. Um, one, one area in, in terms of hope is just to be able to look and see the number of people from all different backgrounds, all different groups who are now standing up, not only in the United States, but in many other countries, and who are saying, this isn't right. This is not the way that things should be. Uh, it, it's it's uh, just refreshing in many respects from my perspective to be able to see not just African-Americans, but uh, African-Americans, Asian, Latino, Latina, Caucasian, so on and so forth. Just, just a, a multitude of people from different backgrounds who are coming out to speak to these issues. So it's not just one group of people who are speaking to the issue, but it's multiple groups of people who are speaking to the issues. The second thing that I see, which also gives me a little bit of hope, is the fact that people at this point are saying, you know, words are not enough. And, and that's encouraging. As far as feeling hope at the moment, I think two days ago, when was that? I think Tuesday was a really difficult day for me, just after seeing everything that's going on in our nation, seeing how the current president responded with just wanting to use power and dominance uh, mm. to control people. I think that was really disheartening for me to see. But yesterday, I actually watched a town hall with our former President Obama, and he was talking about just the progress that has been made, similar to what, what Walter was saying, how in the 1960s during the civil movement, you would have never seen such a diversity of protesters. Mm -hmm. And uh, just having that uh, diversity shows how many more people are aware and are standing in solidarity with the African-American community. And that is a step towards progress. Mm -hmm. um, and also just seeing um, how many different organizations are working towards reform in practical ways, I think is really encouraging to hear. They talked about an organization called The Color of Change and Obama's organization called uh, My Brother's Keeper. I think just seeing like actual organizations who are already engaged in this work and like, oh, there's actually like things that practical things that are being done and we can support those organizations. Because I know a lot of times um, people just feel really overwhelmed with everything that's happening and don't even know where to start. But to be able to just um, support those organizations that are already doing the work, I think mm -hmm. is a good place to start. That is really, really encouraging for us to think about. I, I saw a meme earlier today that uh, basically said, that, you know, rather than think of 2020 as like the worst year ever and just, you know, I'm writing off 2020, 2020 is over. I'm just, you know, ready for 2021. Maybe we should think about 2020 as the most important year ever. And actually 2020 is calling us to address a lot of things that need change right now. And I, I found that to be a very thoughtful and, and helpful and, and hopeful meme. 
maybe a helpful thing for us to, to think about is what is what is God doing in the midst of 2020? How is he using all of these things that have been going on from COVID to the racial injustices that we have seen uh, recently and the response, the national and worldwide response to it? How, how might God be drawing us to uh, avenues of, of change? And so I just want to leave that for us to think about. And I want to thank both of you, uh, Grace and Walter, for, for joining us today and being a part of this conversation. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. If you'd like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the two cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.